Man, it is so good to see all of y'all today and worship here. Guests here, my name's David. I'm the pastor of the church. We're so glad you're here. Hope you always feel welcome to be a part of what we have going on. Sometimes, if you're fairly new, you may hear us talk about phase two, which is kind of going on, and of a building campaign. Hear us talk about impact. Those may be kind of foreign terms to you. Just go on our website sometime. I don't want to take sermon time to talk about it, but go on our website, and you can see all that's going on. Impact is something that's kind of the, the capital campaign that's helping us with phase two. It began in October of 21, going through October of 24. We're kind of halfway through it. There's an opportunity for you to join that if you want, either through you know, giving, praying, whatever you want to do. And so there's information about that. You'll hear more about it. But let me just say this, especially to you who are guests, don't ever feel like you have to give money to our church. We don't expect you to give any money if you're a guest. In fact, none of you, listen, sometimes it's hard in life, I know. Don't ever think, we'll never pressure you for money. I just, sometimes just want to say that and make sure you understand. Listen, if you never give us a penny, this is still your church home. We still love you. This is your church. And you don't, you don't have to pay for this to be your church. You just come and you love Jesus and you worship and you give your life to Christ. That's what we want for you. So don't ever feel that pressure because that would be the last thing as a pastor that I'd ever want for you to do is feel like somehow you're obligated to give some kind of money here because you're not. This is your church. And uh, one of the things we talk about all the time at this church is that Christians follow Jesus. We do nothing more than that. We do nothing less than that. But to follow him has specific meanings, and it means that you believe, that you trust him, that you have faith in him. Give your life to him. Um, Paul could write it like this. He could say, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith. You're saved through faith. He could also write, um, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You'd be saved. You're saved through belief, through faith. And so for the next six weeks, really, up through Easter, we're going to talk about believe. And we're going to be in the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. And I hope, I hope at some point you'll, you'll get to read in through there. And this, this is a chapter about believing. And uh, eight times the word believe or b- belief is used. And uh, it, in fact, it is. Just the, the Gospel of John, which is the last of the Gospels written, really is almost like I don't want to say it's the memoirs of John, but it's truly taken from John's perspective. You just see John throughout this. And in the end of chapter 20, and there's one more chapter to go after chapter 20, chapter 21, but the climax of this whole book is in John chapter 20, verse 31, when he says this, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have faith in his name. All this stuff I wrote for you, so you believe. You'll trust him with your life. And you'll be saved. You'll have life in his name. Now, we come today to the first 10 verses of chapter 20. And what we're going to come to is the empty tomb. And so I'm going to bring you a message entitled, Empty. Because the tomb of Christ was empty in John chapter 20. And here's the thing that I really want you to see from this message today. And it's this. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need a good explanation for the empty tomb. I mean, you do. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be able to talk a little bit about the empty tomb. And so John chapter 19 ends. Jesus has been crucified on the cross. He says it is finished. And then they buried him. And the guys who buried him was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. It was his tomb and a guy named Nicodemus. They led the way. Now, those were two of the religious leaders. It was the religious leaders who put Jesus to death, but not those two guys. In fact, those two guys were the exception because for the most part, the religious leaders just rejected Jesus. Even after the resurrection, some Pharisees will come to Christ. But there was over 6,000 Pharisees, you know. Some priests will come to Christ. There are thousands and thousands of priests. 
But for the most part, they all rejected Jesus, right? But Joseph took Jesus, and they had to do it quickly. He got him ramped up, put him in his brand-new tomb no one's ever been in, and they took this 2,000-pound rock, put it right in front of the entrance. Now, Matthew tells us also that because of who Jesus was, the Pharisees were afraid that the disciples would come steal the body of Jesus. And so Matthew went to Pilate and says, we don't want that to happen. So Pilate put a seal over that rock. And the only way you could break that seal without his permission, or if you broke that seal without his permission, he put you to death. And that's what Pilate did. Plus, he put a group of Roman soldiers there to guard the tomb. Now, that's not mentioned in John, but you've got to have that backstory there, okay? So you've got all these things going on. And you come to chapter 20. And here's what you have to realize, that there was a tomb that held the body of Jesus. And then it didn't. It was empty. Well, there's this tomb, and then it was empty. That empty tomb is an important part. We kind of gloss over it from time to time, but it's an important part of the story of Jesus. Uh, when I was younger, I remember I was a teenager, the song, Because He Lived, came out, and we all loved it back then, and we sang it on our retreats, and it's popular today. And there's a line in the song, Because He Lived, that says this, an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And everybody loves that. Oh, that's such a great part, except it's not true. The grave that is empty does not prove that Jesus lives. It proves that Jesus isn't in the grave. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say the empty tomb proves the resurrection. In fact, what we have to realize is we've got to give an account of that resurrection. Now, sometimes, the empty tomb. Now, sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we keep putting the pressure on people who are not Christians to try to explain away our faith. You know, how do you explain this, that, or the other? It's not their job. In fact, let me say this about the empty tomb. It is not the responsibility of those who don't follow Jesus to explain the empty tomb. It's not their job to explain it. It is our job to explain it. Now, people talk about the empty tomb, and there's all sorts of reasoning and rationale behind it. I probably, in my eight years here, I don't think there's any question. I preach on the resurrection of Jesus more than anything else, as I should. And I talk a lot about the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. I talk about, about what people say and, you know, and, and you know, how you can know. And in the book that I wrote, which none of you evidently bought, uh, because there's still plenty of copies available, but uh, <laughs> had you done that, there would have been a whole chapter. You're laughing out loud because you haven't done it. There would have been a whole chapter there about this, but that's neither here nor there. Don't worry about it. I'll just tell you something about it now. But people all the time, they're trying to explain it. Some people say, well, you know, they went to the wrong tomb. You know how amazing it is to think that the people back then were so stupid they couldn't figure out which tomb Jesus was in? Seriously? You think it was the wrong tomb? I mean, in Acts chapter 2, Peter and John are preaching to the guys to put Jesus to death. And they say, you killed him. God raised him from the dead. All they had to do was say, time out here. He didn't raise from the dead. He's in that tomb right there. You went to the wrong tomb. That would have killed Christianity from the very beginning. So they didn't go to the wrong tomb. Sometimes people think, well, Jesus sort of just revived in the tomb. Now, understand. At the tomb of Christ, there's a 2,000-pound rock you have to roll away uphill, you know. But not only that, they beat Jesus with the whip so bad, he was so brutalized that he couldn't even carry the crossbeam to Golgotha. In fact, he was so beaten that most medical experts who would know something about that time would say he would have died from infection. Normally, when you're on the cross, you're going to die from exhaustion and strangulation. He died kind of early because he gave up his spirit. So the Romans who were experts in death, here's what they did. They took a spear and they thrust it up in his side into his heart. And they pulled it out, and blood and water gushed out, and they said he was dead. And then they took his body, and they wrapped it all up so tight, you know, like this, wrapped it all up. Then they put something over his face that would have suffocated him. And then they put him in that tomb, and somehow people think he got out of all of that and just walked away. Yeah. 
Some people think that the appearances of Jesus were a bunch of hallucinations. And in the 60s, this was a fairly popular way of viewing how those things occur. They were all hallucinating, like all of us do. But really, the truth of the matter is, if you don't believe in the resurrection, the only thing that makes sense, and for me, if I was not a follower of Christ, knowing how my mind works, the only thing that I would think is someone took the body of Jesus. It's the only thing that really makes sense. And then on top of that, they'll add to it that the early church then just made up the resurrection stories of Jesus. So here's the thing. I like to put things in their simplest ways. I like to make things simple. I have a simple mind. I want things to be simple. There are only two possibilities for the empty tomb of Jesus. Somebody took his body or he walked out on his own power. That's it. Somebody took him or he walked out on his own power. So that brings us to chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. In other words, the stone had been rolled up. Now, all four of the Gospels tell us that it was the first day of the week, Sunday. All four tell us it was dark. And here's what's really cool. All four tell us that the first people to go to the empty tomb with Jesus wasn't Peter, and it wasn't John. It was a group of women. And all of them say, Mary led the way. Now, you, you need to kind of get this just a little bit for that culture. And in that day and age, whether you were Gentile or whether you were Jewish, whether you came from the Roman world or the world of Israel, women really were kind of regulated to, to men. I mean, men were in control. They had power. Now, I, you know, I don't want to put it any other way, but it's not that women were second-class citizens, but that they had no real legal standing. In fact, in a court of law, they couldn't even testify. I mean, 20 women could watch someone commit a crime, and unless there were two men involved, they couldn't, they couldn't prosecute because they, they, they didn't, it didn't count. And, and I, I, I don't like saying this, but women, you understand, back then you didn't count. Now, by the way, the reason today in, in Western civilization that that has changed is because of Christianity. You know that, right, don't you? It is Jesus who changed that world and his followers. Slowly, yes, they did. Because women matter, and these women matter, and Mary especially. I mean, we don't know much about her. Sometimes they'll talk about Mary, and some, you know, some people say, well, she was the prostitute that came and you know, wiped away you know, the, the, the tears on Jesus and all that. Well, there's no reason to think that. One of the early church guys said that. There's no biblical evidence, so don't think of her as a prostitute. I know in, among liberals, they think she married Jesus because out of second and third century fake writings that came about, and you've watched the Da Vinci Code. That's the whole secret to the Da Vinci Code, that, you know, Jesus married uh, Mary. You know, that, that's just garbage. Nobody, nobody, that didn't happen. What we know from her comes really from Luke chapter 8. Um, she was possessed by seven demons, and Jesus cast them out. And not only that, but she began to follow Jesus, and she began to support him. Mary was at the cross. When Jesus died, she watched him die. She knew where they took him. I mean, this was this is that woman. So try to understand this. Mary, for what she was, really was an outcast. You've got to understand, she was an outcast. First place, because of a woman, women didn't get involved in religious affairs, but she did. That made her different. But beyond that, she was possessed by demons. And in that day and age, no matter if you were healed or not, the only reason you were possessed by demons is because of your sin. She did something to cause that. So in the Jewish world, she would have been a complete outcast. But she loved Jesus, and she followed him because he accepted her. In fact, here's the thing. With Jesus, Mary believed she mattered to God because she did. Do you realize that Mary understood that she mattered to God because of Jesus? 
And Jesus was always making sure people knew they mattered to God. That's why the people who followed Jesus were outcasts. They were all outcasts. I mean, tax collectors loved Jesus. Tax collectors were hated by the Jews. Now, that's no surprise. Nobody likes tax collectors. I get that. None of you want to hear your kid when you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Dad, I want to work for the IRS. Nobody wants to hear that. That's, that's like, oh, man, no. And no one wants to, you don't want, if someone introduces themselves and they work for the IRS, you just, ugh. In fact, only if they do it, here's what they do. Here's, here's the first thing they say. I'm a CPA, I work for the IRS. When you hear them say, I'm a CPA, you are already so bored, you just tune them out, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry for you CPAs. It's not personal. You made that choice. No one drafted you to be a CPA. <laughs> That's the road you chose, baby. You've got to travel it all the way to boredom. We don't care. And the tax collectors followed him. And Gentiles, after the resurrection, Gentiles who were hated by the Jews followed Jesus. In fact, when John wrote this gospel, Christianity was primarily made up of Gentiles. I mean, the outcasts always followed Christ. And, and Paul, this is so remarkable about Paul. Paul took the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, and he put it in a way that people could understand, like in doctrinal form, and in several places, this is what Paul said. In the eyes of God, there is neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, free man or slave. We are all valued by God. And Christianity became the religion of, of outcasts. Tuesday, I went to see the Jesus Revolution. If you haven't seen it, go see it, all of you. And I have a deal with Alan Theater, so I get a cut for that recommendation. <laughs> and that movie really hit me as I was watching. I don't usually go see faith-based films because, A, usually the acting's bad, and B, it's just cheesy. But I went. And <clears throat> it's a story, without giving it all away, from 1968 to 1972 of the Jesus movement, and this, young, and this teenage guy named Greg Laurie got involved in it. Greg Laurie, if you see any on social media now, he's Harvest Fellowship, that movement. But out of that whole situation came three great church movements, uh, Calvary Chapel by Chuck Smith, the Vineyard, and then um, came Harvest. And, and all that started, and, and Calvary Chapel is just this little church. I mean, just, and I recognize this church from my past. I mean, it's small, run less than 50 people, you know, it's all straight-laced, all ultra conservatives. And these Jesus kind of freak hippies start coming. And it causes big conflict without going into all the details. At the end of the day, Chuck Smith made an important decision. He said, there are no, there are no outcasts to Christ. We're opening the doors of our church up. And it led to this explosion of the Jesus movement. Now, I learned something else about Chuck Smith's story that I found fascinating, that it's okay to baptize without your shirt on. I learned that also. So he did that. So the next time I baptize, you know, I'm just telling you, it's not a sin. It may be freaky gross, but it's not a sin. Some of you are visualizing that now and you're regretting that moment, aren't you? I know. I do that on purpose sometimes, keep me honest. That movie hit me so close to home because I grew up in that world. When I started in ministry in 1980 as a youth minister, just, just eight years past that, when, when uh, the movie's time ended, I mean, church is still that way. And churches, there still were people who were outcasts. They didn't belong here. We don't want you here. In 1985, I'm pastoring this really small church. It runs less than 30 people. And his family came. It was different. And then afterwards, this deacon came up. And it didn't matter if he was a deacon. Just, just, this guy, you know, God had mercy. I hope God had mercy. I hope he was saved. I don't know. But he looked at me and said, that family that visit is not welcome here. They can't come back. 
Now, you want to know what their sin was? You want to know what made them an outcast? You know what they did that was so grotesque they could not come to our holy church? They were Hispanic. That was it. That killed me. And I knew I wasn't going to survive there. I was too young. I mean, I was still as arrogant and cocky as I was, but I didn't have the experience or the meanness to take them on. But I made a promise. No one will ever be an outcast in the church that I pastor. There are no outcasts. Anyone can come into the doors of First Baptist Church. And we will never look at you or anyone else as if you don't belong. And you have my word that as long as I pastor this church, there are absolutely no outcasts. Here's the thing. We must embrace the outcasts, but not their culture. I mean, I preached in January about not embracing culture, but engaging it. But don't make the mistake of thinking because you don't embrace the culture, you don't embrace people. We always embrace people who need Jesus. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That is John. It's just how he refers to himself. And he said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know. Well, they have laid him. She said, he's gone. Now, notice this. She was expecting Jesus to be there. She wasn't thinking about resurrection. And notice this also. She went back to Peter and she went back to John because she knew they didn't have the body. So two things right off the bat. There's no body there where they were supposed to be one, and none of them knew where it was. So it's critical to realize at this juncture is that before the resurrection of Jesus, no one expected Jesus to rise again. They didn't expect him to rise again. So, you know, when, when people say, well, the church just made it up, why would the church make something up that nobody thought would happen? That doesn't make any sense at all. And so, here's what we see. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. <laughs> I love this part. The two were running together, and the other disciple who ran had faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. I think Sean's just saying, I'm younger, and I'm in better shape than Peter, you know? <laughs> Peter's the rock. You know, he's the rock. I'm the athlete. <laughs> you always, you always, those guys are always competing. Our staff, we always compete. I mean, I get that. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. He didn't go in. So he got there. Tomb's empty. He saw the wrappings. He didn't go in. He got that. And so Simon Peter also came out of breath, following him and entered the tomb and saw the linen wrappings lying there. And, and he saw the faith cloth, face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So understand, they got there, and there's no tomb. There's no body. The tomb's empty. Now, they didn't take the body of Jesus. And if those two guys didn't lead in taking the body of Jesus, ain't none of the disciples took the body of Jesus, right? Well, they would have known it, and they would have known what was going on. And so sometimes people think that Maybe grave robbers took it. Now, grave robbing has always been a problem. And people would go rob the grave, some as wealthy as Joseph especially. But remember this for the grave robbers to get there. There were Roman soldiers. They would have had to do something with them. Now, these guys didn't know it. I get it. But you just need to understand, there was Roman soldiers there. And they weren't going to overtake Roman soldiers. There was a seal that they would have to break. They weren't going to do that. So the most important thing, though, these two guys, is when they got there, they looked in, and here's what they saw. They saw the clothes that cloth that Jesus was wrapped in lying there neatly folded, and they saw his face covering there also in a separate place. Now, you think about it for a moment. You're going to rob a grave. 
And there's nothing of value in there but just a body. <laughs> and you're, you're breaking the law by robbing the grave. Robbers, you know, snatch your grave. They're theoretically almost always in a hurry, right? So are you going to take the time to unwrap this body, which, by the way, will be decomposing, smelly, and naked, of no value, and you're going to take the time to wrap, unwrap it and then fold it neatly and put everything in its place so you can take this corpse and run? Nobody's going to do that. No one. And they know that. So here's what you have so far. You have an empty tomb. You have disciples who didn't steal the body of Jesus. You have grave robbers. Nah, they didn't steal the body of Jesus. And oh, by the way, you have women who are outcasts, the first one there to tell the story until John and, and Peter arrive, right? So verse 8 says this. So the other disciple who had first come into the tomb also entered. And he saw and he believed. For as yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, the scripture they're talking about, when they talk about scripture like in the gospels, they're talking about what we call the Old Testament. In, in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, there are some places there that, that talk about, um, you know, make, that kind of look forward to the resurrection. But they weren't thinking about that. Nor were they thinking about the fact that Jesus had told them, you, you slay this body, you, you, you tear this temple down, you kill me, and three days later I'll rise again. He said that. But I, in fact, when I preached last year on Mark, I mentioned three different sermons about that phrase, about some degree, but they weren't thinking about that. Here's what, here's what John knew. The tomb was empty. He and Peter didn't take the body. And since there were cloth wrappings laying there, he knew grave robbers didn't take the body. He knew all that. So he believed. He hadn't even seen the resurrected Jesus yet. Later on in John's gospel, um, Genesis 20th chapter, after Thomas sees Jesus, we'll see that in a few weeks. John, John writes this and I, about Jesus. And I can just see John, you know, the disciples always kind of maybe just getting each other loose a little bit because we, we would do that, right? I mean, I don't care how holy we are. We don't mind getting someone just a little bit. He quotes Jesus as saying, Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe and have never seen. You believe, and you and I have never seen the resurrected Jesus. He put the pieces of the puzzle together. The early church didn't make this up. The early church isn't going to start an empty tomb with women seeing the body of Jesus. Next week, we're going to see the first person to see the resurrected Jesus was Mary. You think they're going to put that the first person to see the resurrected Jesus was outcast? No way. The disciples didn't take it. And nobody would have stolen it. It's simple for John. The only explanation for the empty tomb was the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. Nothing else makes sense. For John, the only explanation for the empty tomb is the resurrection of Christ. And I would share with you that to this day, at least to me, this guy, the only explanation that makes sense to me for the empty tomb is the resurrection of Jesus, especially since there's all those appearances to Jesus to all those different people. So verse 10 says this, the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, when it says my own homes, where they were living in Jerusalem. But it didn't last long because everything's about to break loose. <laughs> so Jesus, and just within a short period of time, and that day, he's going to appear to Mary. We'll see that next week. He's going to appear to that woman before anyone else. And then he's making other appearances. The guys on the road to Emmaus will see him. Uh, Peter's going to see him. Then he's going to appear that night to all the, all the guys except Thomas. Then the next week, he's going to appear to all the guys with Thomas. They're all going to go to Galilee, see him up there. Then they're going to see him again in Galilee. Chapter 21 of, of John talks about the fish fry they kind of had. And, so on. and then they're going to come back down to Jerusalem. And then Acts chapter 1, they're going to see him. They're going to see him ascend into heaven. They're going to see all of that. 
And then they're going to pray. That's going to take about 40 days. They're going to pray for 10 days. And then on that 50th day, the Sunday of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's going to come. Acts chapter 2, man, and things are going to get wild and crazy. The houses are rocking and shaking and tongues of fire and the power of the Holy Spirit comes on everyone there, all 120 people. That's men and women, by the way. Women, they were part of that. And they're going to start sharing the gospel and people are going to hear it in their language. And Peter's going to get up and preach a message that says, you killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead. And 3,000 people are going to be saved. And the Christian movement begins with the resurrection of Jesus. And it grows and expands and it moves and it faces opposition everywhere it goes. The Jews oppose it. The Romans oppose it. In fact, the Romans begin to persecute the church, to wipe it out, to destroy it. Nero, when he's emperor towards the end of his reign in the late 60s, in mid-60s, begins to kill them off. He kills Peter. He kills Paul. And the, of the 11 disciples that are there, 10 of those guys will die for their faith. Only John will not die as a result of persecution, but he'll be tortured. In fact, Domitian, who becomes emperor later in the late 80s and early 90s, begins to do everything he can to wipe out the Christian movement, so much so that John writes a book to struggling Christians in Asia Minor, what we call Asia Minor, when he talks about Domitian as the beast that rises up out of the sea seeking to destroy them, and he gives them a message of hope that Jesus Christ wins in the end, and they never give up. And for the better part of over 250 years, the church struggled against Rome. Rome took up arms against the church to wipe it out completely. And the church, without ever entering a war against Rome, without shedding bloodshed, Jesus Christ in his church won that war. And in 312, Rome surrendered and became Christian because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because a movement began that changed the life of people. A movement began that said, even if you're an outcast, you can belong. A movement began that said no matter how much you sin and what you've done wrong in your life, you belong to God through believing in Jesus. And it spreads to this day to China, which will soon have more Christians than America, even though people are persecuted, to Islamic countries in Africa and the Middle East where 7 to 8 million, 9 million people a year convert to Christianity with a death sentence on their hat. And it goes, and it goes, and it goes because of Jesus, because of the resurrection. So understand the resurrection of Jesus was and is to this day the motivation and the message behind this movement you and I are a part of. History has a way of being inconvenient to the things that people want to believe and think. That's why they change history so much. You can't change facts. You can't just sweep them under a rug. Here are the facts. There's this guy named Jesus. God sent him. And he said, I am the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I am God in the flesh. And they killed him for it. But when he died, he died for us. He died in our place and on our behalf. And they put him in a tomb to make sure nobody could take that body. And yet that tomb was empty. And the only way that tomb could be empty, from any logical sense as well as spiritual sense, is that Jesus walked out of that tomb on his own power. Because God raised him from the dead. And at some point, that's the fact. And we take it on faith. And we believe. 
We believe, though we've never seen him. We believe what others have said and saw. We have faith. It all begins with the fact that there was a tomb that had the body of Jesus. And then it didn't. It was empty. So let me ask you this. What do you believe about the empty tomb? It matters what you believe. And do you believe that Jesus walked out of there on his own power because God raised him from the dead? And do you have the type of belief that says, I'm going to take my life and I'm going to trust this Jesus. And I'm going to give my life to him. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you think you're an outcast or an outsider or you're one of them. Listen, without Jesus, we're all outcasts. We're all outsiders. We're all part of them. Because without Jesus, we're all rebels against God. Rejecting God at every point of our life. Until Jesus came. Until Jesus comes to you. And by his grace, he gives you the chance and calls you. Come here and trust me. Come here and believe. Do you believe in Jesus? You can right now and give your life to him. Do you have the sins that need to be forgiven? Every one of them will be forgiven in Christ if you take your life and give it to him and say, forgive me. If you need to trust Jesus, if you need to be forgiven, if you need to believe, then just a moment, why don't you just come up here? A couple of us will be here, we'll talk to you. Ladies, there'll be a woman here if you'd rather talk to a woman, I get that. If you want us to pray for you or someone else, we will. If you want to join our church, you can. But here's the thing. You're going to walk out of this building. And when you walk out of this building, understand that tomb is still empty. The real issue is what do you do with the empty tomb of Christ? To you, believe. So, Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your grace. That you didn't let the fact that we're sinners, you didn't let the fact that we're outcasts, you didn't let the fact that we don't belong keep you from sending Jesus. And you sent him when he died for us. He took our sin, and then they took him and they put him in a tomb. And then one day, Father, they discovered the tomb was empty because you had raised Christ back to life. And having raised him back to life, he left that tomb of his own power. So God, we praise you and honor you and ask you now to speak to us through that Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? You come. We'll be here.